This episode of the Case for Safety podcast is sponsored by Safety Focus. Welcome to the Case for Safety podcast. Our conversations with safety experts aim to share ideas and insights you can use to help your organization benefit from efforts to improve worker safety and health. I'm your host, Scott Fowler. Hello, Case for Safety podcast listeners. Uh, hope everyone out there is doing well and enjoying a nice start to uh, 2022. We have something special for you this week, uh, a two-part episode. To give you a little background, uh, the subject of this episode grew from a, a question we actually saw posted on LinkedIn recently, and that question was, what should you do if your boss wants you to violate OSHA regulations? Now, we thought this was a, a very interesting question to have a conversation around, and this episode examines that question from two perspectives, both uh, an ethical perspective and a legal perspective. Uh, part one of this episode features James Beretti, president and CEO of Beretti Incorporated, discussing the subject from an ethical perspective. In part two, we're joined by Todd Logsdon, National Workplace Safety Practice Group co-leader and partner at Fisher & Phillips LLP, who shares his legal expertise on OSHA regulations. So uh, without any further ado, we hope you enjoy this two-part episode. Ethics. This is a word that may conjure to mind many different things. Joining me today for a conversation on ethics in the context of occupational safety and health is James Beretti. James is a certified safety professional with more than 33 years of experience. He is also president and CEO of Beretti Inc., a professional safety, health, and environmental firm, which provides a broad range of technical and business safety solutions. Uh, James, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Hey, thanks, Scott. Thanks for having me on. And uh, ethics, boy, you're not kidding. That is really something else, isn't it, as a topic? <laughs> you, ask, you ask 10 people what ethics means, and you're going to get 10 different answers. You know, They'll be close in some regards, but not 100%, you know, always there. So, yeah. absolutely you're exactly right and that that was kind of why we wanted to to have this conversation today to talk about you know some of the you know the ethical dilemmas safety and health professionals may face but uh to your point i thought we could kind of start there first things first we kind of have to define what it is we're talking about so i thought we could kind of start by defining ethics in the context of safety and health to provide you know some foundation for the rest of our conversation yeah that's uh it's very interesting because again you know you're dealing with something that uh, people find nebulous and it's they they feel like it should be a black and white line but really it's a gray area because over time you know uh, ethical standards if you will change even in my time that I've been with ASSP you know a member of ASSP I've seen the code of ethics change and change with the times as it goes in no point does it ever ask you to you know compromise your value of safety and what you are as a safety professional Rather, what it does is it tries to set a standard by which we as safety professionals, those of us who are dedicated to the profession, we work in the profession on a regular basis, either internally with a company or externally with a number of clients or with a company as well, 
in finding kind of a bound, if you will, that if we're going to practice in this profession, what would be considered ethical and what would we not consider to be ethical from the standpoint of the practice of safety? Now, as you can imagine, safety for most safety professionals, and I would say actually probably for all safety professionals, it's really something that is very valuable you know, we're, we're looking at is from the standpoint that anything that we might, you know, kind of compromise our ethics or our value in safety would actually be harmful to a person or the environment or to a property, uh, anything along those lines. So as a result, it's us as the profession that kind of sets it out and says, you know what, this is our ethical bound. This is what we would do as far as how we practice what we do with regard to safety. Now, that definitely sets up dilemmas, obviously, which we can certainly talk about, but that may sound like a very broad-based type of kind of context, if you will, of what ethics really is. But then again, that is really what we're talking about here. You know, if you look at our code of conduct, from the ASSP, there are many things that are talked about, including areas of practicing and safety where maybe you don't have a proficiency. So should you instead reach out and find someone who is very well versed in this, an expert in that area, and then go ahead and deliver a service that way? And I'm not talking at it from a consulting standpoint. I'm also talking about it internally. Now, many of us are very curious. We like to learn. So we like to learn a new area and a new skill. And that's fine. But what we don't want to do is get so in-depth into areas that we don't know that we could actually be more harmful than do good. So that gives you an example of what a definition would be and also an example of one of the things that we have as our code of conduct. Absolutely. That was great. And yes, we'll, we'll get into to some of those, those dilemmas later. And I think that gives a really good foundation and a good segue into my next question. Ah. Something you talk about is a principle-driven culture. So I wonder if we could touch on that, expand on that, and how a principle-driven culture can help people act in an ethical manner to make their workplaces safer and healthier. Yeah, and really the whole idea here is I draw from the works of uh, Tom Krause, which a lot of people would know. He's been, you know, very well versed in this area for many, many years. He's done a lot of contribution to the safety profession overall, and he's written numerous times in Professional Safety Journal all about a principle-driven culture, meaning that ethics can really set up a good foundation for where a safety process and a safety program really are the foundation for your ethical practices. So in those kinds of things, he talks about the principle as an example of, and, and I don't recall them all right off the top of my head, but you know, essentially being able to communicate in a manner that is truthful, whether it be good news or not. And that by doing that, you end up with a fair sense of justice. And as a result of that, you end up with people who are willing to contribute. They don't have a fear of bringing things forward. They're not going to bring forward things that are just extraneous and have nothing to do. And, you know, sometimes we run into this as safety professionals, time killers, if you will, in the name of safety. Instead, they're actually going to bring forward something that is very useful and needed for the organization. And it's encouraged. And by doing that, you've set up an ethical bound and you've now created a foundation upon which a culture can be well, 
quite honestly, grown and, and developed from that. And that's only one of several principles that Tom does talk about. And I think it blends very well because he talks about it from the standpoint of ethics being the eth ethical principles brought into a safety process that then has an effect on the entire organization over time. I love your point there again about the, the ethical bound, you know, setting that standard for yourself and your organization. And, you know, th this is, the, you know, what we're going to, to hold ourselves to in an ethical sense. But that does mean, as you just mentioned, there are going to be gray areas that safety and health professionals encounter. So I thought we could kind of talk about, as you touched on, some of those, you know, maybe common dilemmas, conflicts, pressures that safety professionals may encounter in the workplace. Yeah, there's a lot of things like that, uh, such as you see the hazard, you have a discussion with someone and they're like, look, I'll get in trouble if this is brought forward. And it's like, but we need to solve a problem here. You know, we're looking at it from the standpoint of, hey, we see this issue. It could result in an injury or even worse uh, to an employee or even, uh, you know, a contractor or a visitor in our areas as a result of this. We should bring this forward to get it solved, but we end up with pressure, say, from someone that we work very well with. We've worked very hard to develop a very good relationship, and as a result of that, we kind of you know, feel for the individual because we know that person could potentially get in trouble. But do we bring it forward? Do we not? You know, do I harm, you know, we might have the perception of harming that relationship from the standpoint that if I do bring this forward, as a result, that person gets in trouble, that person's not going to trust me anymore. But the other aspect is this is a hazard. It's an exposure. It's a risk and it's an undue risk. It's things that we need to actually address. So from an ethical standpoint, that's kind of the dilemma. You're torn. Because what am I going to lose versus what can I gain versus what should I really do? And as a result of that, you know, we start to get conflicted. So really what I have found in practice when faced with things like this, because you know, it's like, oh, no, I just don't want this to go sideways. We have such a great, you know, rolling going on here. We have great momentum and it's all working out well. We do need to bring it forward, though. We do need to solve this problem. And as a result, I have found the way you approach it makes the biggest difference in the world. Instead of sitting there saying that, you know what, you're wrong, this is bad, this is a violation, which it may be, it may not be, or it could be, it may be a risk. It's a risk we're not going to take as a company. I'm going to go tell your boss. Instead, it's like, okay, let's talk about how we can resolve this issue because we can't ignore it. And we're not going to. We're not compromising ourselves as safety professionals. We're staying within our ethical bounds. Why don't we see if there's a way we can resolve it? And let's bring this forward so we can put a target on it and we can end up getting it resolved. In the meantime, how do we get people to work around this risk so that they are not exposed? What do we need to do? Do we need to shut this down? Which many times we might be faced with that issue, but not always. Sometimes we end up having to say, you know what, there's another way we can do this. It might take a little bit longer, but it puts people into a safe area. And therefore, we have yet another incentive as to why we want to correct this ethical issue or, or this safety issue, I should say. So that's one of them as an example. Another one really goes to even the example I used from the code of conduct, where it's an area of expertise that maybe we are not very proficient, but yet 
I could get paid for doing that. As a consultant, you're faced with that many times. And it's like, oh, but I could do this. I know I'm smart enough. I know I could get this done. I'll give it a shot. It's like, you know what? Why don't you have the specialist come in, show you what you can do. The next time you face it, you can go a little bit further with the education you need, but you also develop a great relationship with the person who is a specialist in that area. And therefore, everyone gets a share, but what you're doing is resolving the issue. Therefore, you're not compromising that safety and you're not going beyond your ethical bound in that area as well. So a couple of there for, that illustrate the dilemma. It usually has to deal with a financial thing or a personal gain. And the trade-off is, but someone else gets harmed. Have you found in your experience when faced with these conflicts, it is really the fear that is is at the center of it, whether it's, you know, I, I could get in trouble or I could get somebody else in trouble. I think with many cases, the answer is yes. And as, as an example of this is that as a safety professional, we're usually turned to, to provide advice and the answers. Okay. And while that sounds great, one of the things we hate to do as professionals is not have an answer. And so therefore there's that fear that we're eroding our value by not having an answer. When in fact, the best answer is to say, you know what? I really don't know how I'd resolve this at this point, but why don't we brainstorm together to see what we can do? First, what's leading to the issues at hand. Secondly, how we can resolve them. So then we know we get the right resources into place. Therefore, we're not putting ourselves into an ethical issue as a result. So I think these are some of the things that do, um, you know, we do face as safety professionals. And I do know a lot of safety professionals feel that way about the fear of not knowing. Yet one of the best things we can do to lead to our better credibility and a better value for ourselves is to say, you know what, I really don't know this. I need to do some research and we need to brainstorm and we need to put together the team and the right team to make it happen. In the meantime, this is what we should do to make sure that risk does not bring harm to anybody. Absolutely. Cause mm-hmm. yeah, at the end of the day, that that's, that's what it's all about is reducing <laughs> right. that risk and providing the, the safer environment. So I yeah. wonder if we could kind of jump into uh, an example or two. I mean, you, you, you've, you've touched on a little bit here, but example, or maybe a couple examples of, you know, maybe scenarios or case studies that safety professionals may encounter and, you know, how ethics could apply to, as you've talked about bringing that to a resolution. Oh, wow. Oh man. I can think of many that, <laughs> that have, both happened in my organization as well as other safety professionals I know that work work you know for other organizations as well, um, and not consultants. I mean, we we all face this again as, as safety professionals. One that comes to mind is you know a lot of people are very proud to have their lagging indicator index show that you know what we have no recordables injuries. We haven't had the recordable injuries for years, and as a result, when the injury occurs, you know one thing does happen. And it does meet the criteria of recordable, all of a sudden the pressure comes to, hey, you know what? We want to sustain our record of non-recordables and only having instances, incidences, I should say. And as a result, you know what? We want you to not make sure that it's not recorded. It's like, well, I, I can't do that. I mean, I'm bound by my ethics. We know internally that that's the wrong thing to do, that really you know, if we're going to have a recordable and break that cycle or that trend that they are so proud of, then we should find out what led to that recordable, correct it, 
so we can go even longer with the next trend. But instead, you end up with people high up. I know several people who have had this happen to them. And what's happened is they've said, look, you know, quite honestly, if you insist on this, we're going to remove you. You know, and it's been that much pressure. And I know the safety professionals who have done this, at least the ones that I've, I've, I've been in contact with who have had that happen, they've actually said, I can't change the answer. The answer is what it is. It is a legal thing. It is something which, yes, I'm sorry to see that your trend has come to an end, but we need to learn from this and move it forward. In this case, I do know, uh, you know one individual who did do that. They said they were going to remove that individual, and within a month, they did. They actually did it. Now, whether or not they went back and changed that, that's unknown. But the individual did move to another area of the organization, which actually turned out to be even better. They brought somebody <laughs> else in, you know, that I'm pretty sure would have stuck to that as well. So that's one example of some of the things that happened. I know internally I had a, an incident occurred many, many years ago with a new employee that we hired who would go out and do some safety inspections for some of our clients. And those of us who are also internal and do safety inspections, what happened was they actually went out there and again, that kind of fear, but it was from the client side, from the manager side, from the supervisor side. And so what was happening was, Hey, you're finding all these hazards. You know, I could really get in trouble because it looks like I'm not managing this. It looks like I'm not supervising this. And so that person actually told them, well, I'll tell you what, if you give me some of what you make here, grow here, process here, you know, any of those things, I'll overlook a hazard or two. So it doesn't look as bad. And you know what, you got to correct it. Now, that individual felt that, hey, you know what, I still was ethical because I told them they still had to correct it. That's not necessarily true here. You know, the whole idea of doing these kinds of exercises and documenting this stuff is so that you can get it into an action plan and you can actually resolve it, you know, that you solve the issue now so that for the future, that doesn't exist anymore. And if that means that the manager or the supervisor is not really paying attention or managing that part, then coach them. Work with the management group to coach this individual. I really believe that disciplinary processes really should be something that the individual employee or the manager or the supervisor actually brings upon themselves as a result of this. So from there, you know, those kinds of things would be some another ethical dilemma where you have a hazard situation and yet somebody is very concerned about what may happen. So therefore, you know what, I'll get a little bit of something for me. You get a little something for yourself. But again, it comes at the harm of another individual. So, yeah. Right. On, on that topic, kind of going back to your, your recordable example, yeah. And kind of shifting, shifting to current events, you know, a lot of things out there <laughs> with, with OSHA right now, the, yeah. the COVID-19 vaccination and testing ETS, you know, a lot of different opinions about, about those measures and you know, without getting into the, the politics of it, wh- whether it's, you know, those measures or, you know, other OSHA regulations that may be out there. If you have, you know, you're a safety professional with an employer saying, you know, I feel like, you know, we don't really need to uh, do that. I, I don't you know, think those kind of steps are necessary. Yeah. How would you advise, you know, safety professionals to, you know, to handle the, those kind of situations and really make an ethical argument for, you know, why we need to be in compliance and why these measures are, you know, in our best interest as an organization for the safety and health of our employees. 
Okay, well, I'll come up with one that seems to rear its head, I think, quite frequently and can become quite the challenge um, for both our, our employees and, and management within our own organizations, as well as the safety pro. And that would be masking as an example. So if I'll use that and kind of build around that as an example here, we have discovered over this pandemic just how many people enjoy wearing a mask. Yet in the past, we have not been necessarily, well, I don't know if I should say pushing it too much to where we should resolve other safety issues that result otherwise in somebody wearing PPE like a mask, because we're not willing to undertake the engineering of it, you know, engineering the hazard out or substitution and any of the things that you would have in your hierarchy of controls and really just keeping PPE as truly the last resort. And so what I find when getting into this discussion with regard to do masks work or not, well, if I take, and I'll give this as an example, if I take this piece of cloth and put that in front of my face and I'm breathing, this is a barrier, okay? So we already know that not all of the material coming out from what I'm saying and from what I'm breathing out is really going to pass through this. Is it perfect? No, we know that. Okay. And so one of the things to be able to discuss with people is that, yes, this thing can work because you do have a barrier. What we're really talking about is a viral load. That is what makes the difference between whether or not this disease, in fact, pretty much any airborne disease is really passed on. You know, our bodies can fight things. And yes, this is new and we're getting used to it. But nonetheless, that's one of the things to be able to have that discussion with. Now, the next thing then comes up that people say, yeah, well, they they don't work as well as they should. So one of the things I have also found as, and I won't say it's an argument, but really kind of bringing it into perspective, is I tell people, when you go to a doctor and you go to into surgery, a doctor wears a mask. Okay. And as a result, if you really feel that strongly about that, would you ask your doctor to not wear the mask? Hey, doc, don't worry about it. I'm perfectly good because I know masks don't work. Okay. So that gets people really kind of like, okay, well, that's not what yeah, I mean. That's okay. A great example. I gotcha. <laughs> and that's good. But remember, if I even put my hand in front of my mouth, all that material doesn't get as far out as it would as if I'm doing this. So regardless of what people are saying from the standpoint of a regulation, this is one of those things that we should do. Well, you know, it just makes sense common. Well, to me, it makes common sense. You know, yes, I understand it's not fun to wear. Yes, I understand that you don't like wearing it all day long. Hopefully you will learn from this when you're making decisions about in the future, advising people to wear a mask as PPE rather than solving the real problem. Another thing that tends to come up from this also is, well, I'm vaccinated. I'm fully vaccinated. I'm totally vaccinated. Why should I wear a mask? Well, we know enough about the disease as it's continued forward, and we'll learn more again into the Mm -hmm. future because we just don't know how this thing's going to play out and where it's going to go. But we do know that even people who are vaccinated could be asymptomatic, and they're passing it on to other individuals. Plus, do we really want to have that breakthrough case? Okay, do we really right. want to go through this process and really deal with the inconvenience of being time off and things like that? I know several safety professionals who have looked at their organization's leaders and used all of those things as a discussion to say, look, even though 
at times the law may allow for people who are vaccinated or under certain circumstances, you can go ahead and not worry about wearing a mask. It's in the best interest of the organization and everybody as a whole to go ahead and keep that mask you know, thing going until we have a better clue as to what's happening here and the outcome is going to be more positive. So therefore, we can't don't have to be as reliant upon a mask itself. Um, and those organizations have been the ones, at least that I've seen, you know, in talking to my my peers, um, you know, who work in large companies, global companies and things like that, who said that as a result, they have not had a lot of, you know, of these things passing along. And as a result, the executives are very pleased because they've been concerned about the impact it would be if they ended up with significant number of people working a shift, working in a certain department, would have to isolate even sure. for just 10 days, let alone 14 quarantine. Mm-hmm. And as a result, they said, you know, we can't afford that. Even though we're a large organization, mm-hmm. we're making lots of money. That kills us because our customers don't understand that. And they're going to go to the competition who may be taking that extra added precaution along the way. And the executives have gone along with that kind of a discussion. So it gets you away from the politics. It gets you away from the legal aspects of, oh, today we mask, tomorrow we don't, you know, those kinds of things where it's back and forth. And it uses more of an approach from a risk standpoint Mm -hmm. saying, what are we willing to do? What is in the best interest of all the people that work here? And what is in the best interest of our organization as a result? So it's a sustainable type of approach. I mean, this thing is far less, well, there you go. (laughs) This thing (laughs) is far less of a problem than having, you know, a number of people who are out for 10 days or longer and you can't get the work done. And Mm -hmm. now you're putting overtime into play. You're doing all those things that lead to other risks from a safety perspective. Mm -hmm. So anyway, those are some of the things that, you know, from today's standpoint, I would probably say would lead to a good discussion Mm -hmm. rather than an argument with regard to it. Absolutely. Uh, anything else you'd like to add about to, you know the ethics of uh, of safety and health as as we uh, as we wrap up? Sure. Just keep in mind, ethics is not a black and white thing. It is a gray area. You can go too far in the gray. Just to let you know, you can push a little bit of that gray. I think that's the case. And if you ever have, just remember, ethics isn't your feelings. It isn't you know politics. It isn't legal. It isn't you know, a number of different things out there. Ethics is the standard by which professionals have agreed that these are the standards by which we operate. And if you ever have that question that starts to come up that am I facing a dilemma here where I can gain financially, I can gain reputationally, but yet it's a compromise to other people as a result of that, that they could seriously be hurt, they could be harmed in a way, then take a look at the ASSP code of conduct. If you're a CSP, look at the BCSP code of conduct. If you're a CIH, look at the IH code of conduct. Look at those things just to recenter yourself. It only takes a few minutes that can end, you know, otherwise result in a whole harmful of things that might last a lifetime. Absolutely. That, that's, a, that's a great point, a great note to end on. Well, uh, uh, thank you so much again, James, for, for coming on. Uh, this is an issue that's so important for safety and health professionals to, to think about as they, they carry out their day-to-day work. So I really appreciate you coming on and giving your perspective. Thank you too, Scott. Thank you for having me. A pleasure. Thank you. 
And now, part two, featuring Todd Logsdon, National Workplace Safety Practice Group co-leader and partner at Fisher & Phillips, LLP. When the Occupational Safety and Health Act was signed into law in 1970, it required all employers to furnish employees with workplaces free from recognized hazards that are likely to cause death or serious physical harm, and to comply with the standards, rules, regulations, and orders applicable to them within the Act. Here with me today for a conversation about legal compliance with OSHA standards, rules, and regulations is Todd Logsdon. Todd is National Workplace Safety Practice Group co-leader and partner at Fisher & Phillips LLP. Uh, Todd, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Scott. Glad to be here. Glad to be talking to you. Uh, a, lot, a lot to dive into here, so uh, let's get started. Now, I gave a little bit of an overview of the, the OSH Act there at the top, but I thought just to kind of give a little more foundation, we could talk about that a little f- further, especially w- when it comes to legal compliance with OSHA regulation. What are, whether it's you know safety professionals, employers, even frontline workers, what are the most important things that they need to know about legal compliance with OSHA regulations? Well, it, it's, you know, it's, not, it's not optional. It's, it's mandatory that uh, there's consequences if you, you fail to comply. So on top of all of the, the right reasons for doing safety, and I'm a former safety professional, so I, you know, I think I know where your, your listeners are coming from. You, you know, one, we want to protect people. We want people to go home in as good a shape as they, they showed up. But on top of that, there's going to be you know, potential liability for the employer and in some instances, individuals who are responsible for safety. So uh, I think that's the most important thing. It's, it's mandatory, not optional, and there's going to be both financial and potentially criminal penalties involved with failure to comply. I'm very glad you mentioned that. And that's a topic we'll get into here in a little bit, talking about, you know, the, the consequences of non-compliance. But uh, for, for those safety professionals out there to kind of help familiarize themselves with the regulations that may apply to their particular workplace, you know, the, what they need to comply with, you know, there, you have the general duty clause, as well as the clause for, for the construction industry. What are the, the best ways for safety professionals to learn, you know, which regulations apply to their, to their particular workplace so that they know, you know, what they need to comply with to, you know, to be in compliance with OSHA regulations? Well, there, there's lots of tools available to help with that. I think the ASSP has some different, you know, areas of expertise. I can't recall the specific name right now that you can get involved with that will, you'll, you'll be in, you know, training sessions and talking with other people who are in your industry. So if it's construction, if it's maritime, if it's manufacturing, you know, that type of thing. But on your own, what you can do, one, and, and I don't give OSHA a lot of credit, but I'll give them credit for having a pretty decent web page. And you can go on there and they have lots of different ways to search for information. And you can search a lot of times by industry or by hazard and get a lot of information, both the regulations and additional information. And I think assessing your workplace and knowing what hazards your employees are encountering and then determining what you need to do, what regulations apply and what you need to do to to mitigate those hazards is, is the, the step. And there's nothing that can replace the safety professional just digging into, all right, here's my, my workplace, here's the hazards that my employees are exposed to, and then going back and figuring out what those regulations are. Another thing you can do on the, on the web page is once you know your NAICS code, your North American Industrial Classification System code, you can uh, pull up both citations by that industry and injury statistics by that industry. And that will help you understand kind of what you're, you're dealing with, what you're facing with. 
and my guess is most safety professionals can kind of figure that out by, by walking through their facility or their work site, seeing what the hazards are. But this can help if um, there might be something that maybe it's not very common and then you would pull that up, that industry code, and you might find out like, oh, I didn't know that that was something I might have to deal with. But you can also, um, most states will have like an education and training affiliate who can come out and do a uh, an audit and kind of help you with that where you're not going to necessarily be cited. I always caution my clients that if you're going to do that, you need to be prepared to fix the things they find. So, you know, those could be handed off to the compliance group later, but that's another way to understand you know, what, um, what you should be complying with for that particular workplace. Okay. So really as, as a first step, encouraging safety professionals to kind of become more familiar with your workplace. So you, I mean, get your hands around what you're dealing with and then kind of taking a look at the regulations to see what applies and how you can go about addressing that. Another thing you could do if that workplace has had prior citations, you know, you can go back and look at what have you been cited for in the past and that, that does two things. One, that informs you what OSHA was looking for when they came into your workplace. But the other thing is that that's happened within the last five years. If OSHA comes back, you know, that could be a repeat citation. So you want to make sure not only you're aware of what those issues are, but you want to go back out into the workplace and make sure that those citations have remained abated so you don't get a repeat citation. Uh, talking about uh, citations and that that kind of thing, and you touched on this a little bit ago, but what are some of the repercussions they could be, you know, legal, financial, or otherwise for not being in compliance with OSHA regulations? Well, sure. Let, let's start with the, the more direct results. From OSHA, there's going to be penalties associated with citations. Then there's going to be, depending on the situation, if there's a willful violation that results in a fatality, there can be a criminal referral and a criminal prosecution under the federal system. The state systems have some different ways of handling that. So if you willfully ignore employee safety and the worst thing happens, there's a fatality, then you could be looking at a criminal prosecution. And if you're the safety person and you've decided to willfully ignore that, or, or the plant manager has decided to willfully ignore that, my guess is your employer is not going to stand behind you and, and support you, especially if they have policies that said, hey, we're, you know, we're going to be compliant. So those are some of the direct things. Other direct things are going to be, you know, being in compliance with OSHA regulations doesn't mean you're never going to have any injuries, but it's a good start. It's, you know, a lot of times safety professionals refer to the OSHA regulations as the floor for what you should be doing from a safety standpoint. But obviously, if you're not doing anything, you know, every injury you have is going to be a worker's comp claim. If it's a non-employee who's injured, it could be civil litigation. So so. You, Workers' comp claims have costs. That's going to affect your experience modifier, increase your workers' comp cost. There's going to be the, the lost opportunities of the time spent doing the accident investigation. If it's a serious or, uh, injury or fatality, there's going to be an impact on the employees in that area. You may have some employees or their family members saying, well, I don't want you going back into company X anymore because it's really dangerous and I don't want you to get hurt or killed. So then you may have turnover. So now you're you're trying to find more employees in a really tight job market. And then even if you can find them, now you've got to spend time training them. So you're going to lose a lot of opportunities just dealing with the after effects of that injury, as well as you know, non-compliance. If you get a citation, you have to post those. All of your employees are going to know about that. And employees right now in a tight job market might say, you know, gosh, they got so many citations. I think I might go to my the competitor down the road 
who, who has a really good safety record. If you have a union, the union is, is going to be all over you about safety. So there's lots of things that, that kind of come back to safety. And there's lots of studies I could get into about how safety and quality interact. That if you have poor safety, you probably have poor quality and vice versa. So there's lots of reasons why being in compliance at a minimum is going to be beneficial to the company, the company's bottom line, not even just in saving cost, but, uh, but in having a well-rounded workplace, quality products, good employee morale, employee retention. That's a good segue into my next question. You, you laid out uh, quite a few things right there, but thinking about you know, the, the current environment in workplace safety and health uh, as it relates to the, the pandemic and a lot of different opinions about those different measures and you know, without getting into the politics of it, you know, say you know, you're a safety professional getting pushback you know, from your employer, oh, you know, I, don't, I don't think we need to worry about this or you know, this isn't a step I don't think we need to take. How can you know, safety professionals make you know, a, a legal argument for you know, why this is important, why we need to be in compliance, why we need to take these steps in our workplace? Well, I think you could go back to sharing with your leadership some of the things we've talked about, what the costs are going to be, both the direct and indirect cost, what the potential liability could be and the various buckets of potential liability, whether it's OSHA or workers' comp or civil liability or criminal liability. I think another thing we see more and more now is, is the impact of the publicity of citations or a, a, a bad a bad accident or bad injuries or fatalities. For a long time, construction companies have worried about that because that's a factor when they bid on jobs. They want to know what their experience modifier is for workers' comp, what their claims history has been, what their citation history has been. Uh, So that's been an issue for construction industry for a long time. But we're starting to see that more now. And you see some of it with um, an acronym called ESG. I think it is Environmental social and, and governance, I think is the acronym. I may have that incorrect. But where if you're, especially if you're a public corporation, your activities in those areas that include safety are being monitored, whether you want them to be or not, they're being monitored by outside groups and investors get interested in that. And sometimes you hear that maybe derogatorily referred to as activist uh, investors, but they are. So if you've got a uh, maybe, uh, for example, a teacher's pension in California. You know, I know that they, they look at those things before they invest in companies. What is your safety record? What's your record on environmental? What's your record on human rights? That kind of thing. So safety is going to be right in there. And if you have a horrible safety record, that may impact investment. It may impact customers wanting to be affiliated with you. I mean, in the day and age of social media, you don't want to find out on social media with a big scandal that your supplier, maybe a couple of tiers down, has this horrible safety record where uh, they're being cited by OSHA on a regular basis and they've had all these injuries and, and all that kind of thing. So it, it gets beyond even just that direct and indirect cost into in really to the, the business and the brand of the business. So there's lots of tools, lots of weapons to tell your leadership about why we should do these things. So if you, know, if you really have you know, leadership at your company who's refusing to do something that you're confident is a violation and is putting people at risk, and I wouldn't do this right out of the gate every time, but I would have to think about, do I need to send an email, or uh, back when I was doing it, you did memos, to, to say, hey, I, I want to point this out to you, what the issue is, what we should be doing, and let me know how I can help. And you want to do that in a way where you're not threatening anything, but 
going back to those willful violations that result in a fatality, you'd sure want to have that email handy to say, I told them it's not on me. And hopefully you know, your leadership will take that that seriously. Um, if you're someplace where that doesn't isn't well received, then you may want to think about whether you're in the right place. I wonder if we could go back and talk a little bit more about citations. Well, I'm curious how how that process generally works. I mean, it's you know you you have you have an OSHA recordable, you have somebody come on site and issue the citation and the the penalty associated with that could, you know, depend on the severity of the incident or, you know, the number of citations you've had in the past. How does that process generally work? Right. Well, we let's kind of sift through what you talked about there. So having an OSHA recordable, which means you have an injury that meets the requirements that it has to be recorded on your OSHA 300 log, that's not generally not always going to get you an inspection. When it's going to get you an inspection, uh, potentially, is when you have to actually report the injury. So there's a distinction between what's recordable and what's reportable. So what's reportable are fatalities, a hospitalization, uh, an amputation, and a loss of an eye. I think that's all of them. So those are the things you have to call into OSHA. And I think if it's a fatality, you're certainly going to get an OSHA inspection. On the other ones, you probably at 50% or higher that you're going to get an OSHA inspection. So if you're calling one in, I tell my clients, be prepared that you're going to get a visit from OSHA. You can also get visits from OSHA without an injury. It can be due to an employee complaint. It can be due to a referral by another uh, government agency. Uh, certainly have seen that from fire departments, uh, from hospitals. Some states have it set up that work, their workers' comp bureau will make referrals to OSHA. So you can get reasons, uh, different reasons for OSHA to show up open an inspection. It's always good to understand from OSHA, why are they there? What's the purpose? What prompted them to come there? Because that can dictate what the scope of that inspection is going to be. And that's important for employers to educate themselves about how to handle that OSHA inspection, how to know what their rights are and assert those rights. That's probably a separate podcast, though, Scott. That's, a, that's a, an hour or two presentation usually. So that's when they show up. So they show up, they open, have an opening conference. You should, be no, you should know what the scope of the inspection is going to be. They're going to start asking for certain documents, certain documents you have to give them. Uh, really important to know your OSHA 300 logs, 300 A's, and 301s that are requested. OSHA is absolutely entitled to those, and you need to get those to them within four hours of the request. Unless you get something else in writing where OSHA says, yeah, tomorrow's fine, or this is Friday afternoon, so you can get it to me Monday. Unless you get that in writing from OSHA, four hours, and, and they will cite you for that. I've, I've seen that multiple times. Everything else, um, some things they're entitled to because it's in the regulation, or sometimes they're entitled to it because it's relevant to the inspection and why they're there. But you can take time. You can uh, you know, talk to your, your corporate group or your outside counsel to say, all right, are these things relative? Should we provide these or should we push back? Then they're, they're going to do a walk-around inspection. Could be a wall-to-wall -wall inspection, or it could be a focused inspection or limited scope inspection based on the topic that got them there. If that was a fatality or a serious injury that you had to report, then the area of that accident is going to be the scope. It could, could be a certain department where you've had employee complaints about different pieces of equipment or processes. They'll do the inspection. They're generally going to interview employees. They'll do that privately. Then they're going to, uh, oftentimes asked to interview some uh, some supervisors or managers. Uh, another good thing for a company to know is you have a, a right to have another manager or counsel sit in with those managers when they get interviewed by OSHA. 
So OSHA, um, they get all that information, your documents, the walk around, the interviews, and then they're going to wrap up, have a closing conference where they typically are going to tell you, these are the these are the violations I've seen. These are the citations I'm going to recommend. Usually a couple of weeks after that, you're going to get in the mail, the citations and become certified mail. You want to make sure you have a good mail process. Lots of issues come up where, you know, the, the citation comes into Joe, Joe's on vacation, sits on his desk and you miss the deadline to contest the citation or to have an informal conference. You get 15 working days. And that's really important, that clock, because if you miss that deadline, it's done. You're, that, those, you, you just accepted those citations as written. But you get the citations, you can try to work that out with OSHA and have an informal conference and try to, to settle it. Maybe they reduce the penalty. Maybe they uh, eliminate some of the citation items, depending on what you've got. If you can't get what you think you need, then you can always contest the citation and then you're, you're going to litigate it. Um, I, I don't recommend you, you contest and litigate every citation, but I think that's someplace we have to have an evaluation. Do we, do we agree with that citation? Do we agree with the abatement OSHA is recommending on that citation? Uh, what's the impact of accepting that citation on other issues like a workers comp claim or a civil suit that might be possible or union negotiations for a new contract, that kind of thing. So you have to think through lots of different issues about whether I should contest that or not. If all you care about is the penalty, you probably can go to the informal conference, get that penalty reduced, uh, you know, maybe 30, 40%. But if, you, if you're interested in more than that, you're probably going to have to contest the citation. Uh, and that's basically, you're, you're more than likely going to be retaining counsel uh, to help you do that. And it's going to be a, an administrative litigation similar but not exactly like a lawsuit. Okay. And after the inspection, you talked about the OSHA abatement. Is there usually uh, a follow-up after a certain period of time for OSHA to come in and make sure you, you know, you've taken care of the issues they've identified? Well, yeah, the, the OSHA can do follow-up inspections to, to confirm abatement. What, what more typically happens is when you're resolving the case, whether you accept the citation, whether you go to an informal conference and settle, or you contest and either settle or litigate, at some point when the case is over, unless you then vindicate it going all the way through a hearing and you win, then you're gonna to have to provide proof of abatement of the citations and the hazards. And there's a form that's attached with the citation, to worksheet, you'll fill that out. You may have to attach pictures or receipts or some other documents you're gonna produce those or submit those to OSHA that says this is abated. When I've typically seen them come out to do a follow-up inspection has been in one of a couple of circumstances. One is you never responded to the citation. And if you don't ever respond, you know, the citation becomes a final order. And at some point, they're probably going to come back out to, to see if you've taken any action to abate those. And if you haven't, you could get a failure to abate citation and or a repeat citation. And the failure to abate is the one you really want to avoid because that can have a penalty. Like right now, I think a serious citation can have a penalty of up to 13,000 and change. It's uh, almost 14,000. Well, a failure to abate can be that amount per day that that hazard remained unabated. So that can really rack up pretty quickly. So that's, it's important that you do abate it and that you get that information submitted and then that you keep it abated. So, so that's what can happen with abatements. The other time you'll see a, a you'll see a follow-up inspection is when employees realize either you didn't do it or you didn't abate it or it stayed abated for a month and then went back to the 
the same situation. So, you know, a guard was on there and then it came off a month later. You might get an employee, especially an employee working in that area. You may call OSHA up and say, hey, that guard's off again. They come back out. I think that's a great point. In addition to everything you mentioned earlier, I think that what you just laid out there is a strong case for why, you know, for OSHA compliance, that this is the process you're going to have to go through if you have, if you have a reportable. So that, that was a, that was a very good point. Anything else uh, you'd like to add about uh, compliance with OSHA regulations as, uh, as we wrap up? Well, I, I think you're going to see more and more pressure. I, I was just telling you what the, the serious, uh, the penalty for a serious citation can be if you get a willful or a repeat, you multiply that by 10. So right now, a willful could be 136,000 and change and a repeat could be as well. Now, there is um, legislation in Congress that it hasn't been approved yet, but if it were to go through, then a basic serious citation, which is sort of your typical citation, is going to have a penalty of 70,000. And a willful or repeat could be as much as 700,000. So that's if the current penalties don't get your, your company's leadership's attention, I think those will. And, and when you get a serious, you can get more than one serious uh, based on an inspection. So you could have, you know, five or six or 10 or 20 serious citations. And then if they come back, you get a willful or repeat. You, know, you can even get multiples of, of those. And right now, the, the penalties go up based on inflation. They go up every January. So they've, they've just gone up this month. I haven't checked to see what the, the new number is um, yet today, but uh, I'm sure we'll see articles about that this month saying what the new penalties are. So they may be, uh, you know, 14,000 uh, by this month. Sure. And, and with the inflation, you know, doing what it does, those costs can only be anticipated to go up even further into the future. Right. So for under the federal system, they go up every year. Now, some of the state systems don't work exactly the same. All right. Uh, thank you so much again for coming on, Todd. I know this is something that's always got to be you know, t- top of mind for, for safety professionals out there to make sure they're in compliance and doing everything that they can to uh, keep their workers safe and healthy. So I appreciate you coming on and uh, sharing your perspective. Happy to be here. Good talking to you. Join us at Safety Focus, February 21st through the 25th, 2022 in Phoenix, Arizona, and online February 21st through March 4th. Register today at safetyfocus.assp.org. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Case for Safety podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also connect with us at assp.org and follow us on Twitter at assp safety. We'll see you next time.